Welcome to The Beacon, your connection to nonprofit success. Now here's your Lighthouse Council host. Hello, and welcome to The Beacon Podcast, your connection to nonprofit success. I'm Margaret Gardner, your host for today's discussion on critical traits for successful nonprofit leadership. I'm so pleased to have with us today a friend and a longtime professional acquaintance, Mark Pittman. Welcome, Mark, and thank you so much for being here. Well, it's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. Great. We're, we're so glad that you accept it. Mark is the founder of the Concord Leadership Group and has been leading organizations and teams for more than 30 years. He is relentlessly passionate about fundraising success and helping nonprofits and their leaders succeed. Building on three decades of successes and failures, of course, Mark <laughs> helps leaders lead with more effectiveness and less stress. His latest book is The Surprising Gift of Doubt. Use uncertainty to become the exceptional leader you are meant to be. He's also the author of Ask Without Fear, a globally respected book on nonprofit fundraising. Mark's also the executive director of the nonprofitacademy.com. He's a highly sought after speaker and has been featured in media organizations as diverse as The Chronicle of Philanthropy, Real Simple and Success Magazines, NBC, Al Jazeera, and Fox News. Yeah, and honestly, Mark, I could read from your bio all day. <laughs> but I, don't think... <laughs> I don't know if my head will fit into my office anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but but I don't I, honestly, I don't think it would get to the heart of of your passion and your incredible impact in the fundraising and nonprofit world. So it's really a treat to have you here today and to be able to to talk with you about something that I know you're very deeply committed to. So again, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, so your new book is called The Surprising Gift of Doubt. And that, to me, sounds almost counterintuitive because self-doubt has for so long been thought to be something that holds people back. But in the book, you say that doubt is actually a signal that you might be on the verge of greatness. And that part is a, is a quote, which <laughs> I think would be a great comfort to a lot of people including leaders or maybe especially leaders. But um, can you explain that for us? What, what do you mean by that? Well, it's the reason that I, I've been doing executive coaching for about 20 years as a Franklin Covey certified coach. And one of the things that I've noticed is that that self-doubt does tend to just become this huge, gaping, scary monster almost for people to, they, they just feel inadequate. And what I've noticed is that there, we kind of go through four stages of leadership growth, The first, but we're only to, never given a map, <laughs> which is the bummer. Uh, so we start out copying other people. We see other people, how other people have led, and we just do what they did, thinking it'll work for us. And as that doesn't, that it takes a hit on our confidence. So we start looking outside of ourselves for other, other solutions, other formula, other frameworks that can fix us, webinars, podcasts, magazine articles, conferences. And while they they have parts that help us, what we notice is the parts where we fall short. Uh, we might try to implement a goal setting plan and we only get 70% implemented. Instead of being happy with that, we have you know a parent's voice in our head saying, well, where's the other 30%? Well, you know, as like with the report card. And that, so as we keep looking at that doubt uh, and, and we keep hitting, and most people hit, stay in that quadrant. They just lurch from, Success to success, they often have successes behind them so much, so many successes that people around them, their boards and others, think that they can do no wrong. Whatever you they put their hand to, you know, we know they're going to succeed. But the leader themselves has no clue that they're going to succeed because they don't know how they're doing this. Hmm. So the doubt could be just kind of living there, languishing there. But the gift is it could force us to look internally. 
up until now on our map, we've only been looking externally. How did other people do things and what are other people telling me to do? When we start looking internally to figure out why aren't these systems working for me? Why isn't this our organization firing on all cylinders in the way that it should have because we read this book? The, the question shifts from what's broken in me to what's exactly right about me? What's the perfect, what if our, our organization is the perfect perspective that needs to be added to this conversation? And that's where you start having a whole bunch of magic. I call that quadrant three. And there's, you just, you, you start looking about your differences, your hardwiring, your stories. You start exploring what makes me unique and what makes my organization unique. And as you start then continuing to move forward, you build success on success and you start realizing that parts of the part, the stuff that was not matching up before isn't necessarily a failure. And that rebuilds your confidence into the more focused state of quadrant four. Can I say a disclaimer about quadrant four? Because I just realized I left it unfocused. Is that okay? (laughs) Okay. It doesn't mean there's smooth sailing in Nirvana and you're a total blissful, you know, life is easy because we're on a planet dealing with human beings and we're a human being ourselves. So the focus leader means that you see the whole map. You know that sometimes we need to copy people. Sometimes we need to look for systems and sometimes we need to look internally to see what are those, what's our, what's our intuition saying? Or what, what is the, our unique wiring, our unique perspective offering to the situation? That's the, fo- where the focus comes from. Yeah. And that is such a, a, a leap. It's a, it's a flip of, of really everything that most people have learned, you know, the idea of maybe getting comfortable with that doubt and using it to move you forward is, I think, a, a huge, even cultural shift that we're just not, we're just not hardwired to accept that it's okay to have some doubt. Well, and we're taught that you don't, uh, don't listen to your emotions. You know, your, your brain is the engine and your emotions are the caboose. Whatever you put your mind to, your emotions will follow. And there may be some truth in that. Um, we're told to not look at squishy things. We're told to look at hard data and benchmarking and our boards, uh, want the metrics and they want to know, uh, how do we know that we're succeeding, which isn't bad, but when that's the only thing that's being happened, it becomes dehumanizing and it crushes leaders. Uh, as opposed to helping them flourish and how to helping their teams flourish as well. So what helps to flip the switch? How do you do that? How do you flip the switch? Often it's that pressure of, uh, there was a saying when I grew up in Maine, there, I can't do the Maine accent, but there was a hound dog on a general store that kept moaning every once in a while. And a guy from away, which is what we called anybody not from Maine, looked at the shot, the general store owner and said, buddy, what's wrong with your dog? And, you know, every once in a while, the hound would just howl. And he, um, the owner said, you know, he's on a nail. And, uh, well, why doesn't he get off? The, the tourist said. And the mainer said, because it doesn't hurt him that bad. <laughs> and I think there's a, <laughs> in that is the the key for a lot of us. Some of us just grow used to, maybe this is all there is. Maybe this is all there's going to be. Maybe this pain is just part of it. And, you know, it's no kind of no surprise that many CEOs and, and executive directors of nonprofits want to quit um, because it is a thankless task. What flips the switch can often be the either the integrity to self of saying, I can't live this way anymore, more, or my family can't live this way anymore, or my, my nonprofit can't live this way anymore. And instead of thinking the, op- the, the result is, well, I need to leave, it could be, how do I shape this correctly? Remember in my Conquered Leaders podcast, uh, I was talking to a leader here in South Carolina, and she realized, I don't want to come to work. 
when she was the CEO. But she's like, this is not a place I want to work. And, and and then it dawned on her, wait, I'm the CEO. I can shape that. I want this to be a place where people run to work and walk home. They're really excited to be here and they uh, want to give it their all while they're here. So it's a reflection and giving yourself some space to to actually grow. Most of us are not given leadership training. We're promoted into leadership, but we don't have any clue what that means. We just think it means doing the same things we did as as employees where we were completing tasks. But leaders need to actually provide the environment for people to complete tasks. If they start completing tasks for their direct reports, they become micromanagers. Okay. That, I mean, that that is just, it's huge. I think that the the perspective that you're that you're trying to get leaders to see it's it's huge and it's it's a huge difference and i and i think that what something that that kind of goes along with this is something that i heard a long time ago that that really changed my outlook on things and that is that it's amazing how comfortable people can get it's human nature to get mm-hmm. comfortable in even the most uncomfortable of situations That's and that so kind of sounds like what you're talking about well it's interesting i was doing a, a session here in greenville south carolina with a bunch of executive directors for nonprofits that have been in their role 3 to 5 years and uh, it was sort of a kind of an inside look at what is it like to be an executive director and uh, i remember <laughs> Uh, thinking I was going to end the session, the panel with a softball question. I just looked at them and figured they're three to five years into their role. So I asked them, "What? at what point did you start sleeping through the night again? The room was packed. It was standing room only. And I don't think anybody in the room that wasn't a CEO realized that CEOs have sleepless nights pretty regularly because of payroll and stress and issues and all the other different ways that they're getting pulled. And it was I knew I had made a mistake when they started looking at each other. And uh, with this kind of inside grin, then they're like, I'm not sleeping through the night. Are you yet? And so um, I think it's a more common, I had a professor in college that said the most, that which you struggle with most deeply is that which is most common in the other person. So if you walk into a reception and you're totally focused on how are people looking at me? What are they thinking of me? uh, And you, that can be a clue for what you can serve in others because everybody else is thinking the same thing. Yeah. Um, and so that as a leader, I've noticed that most leaders um, struggle with this, especially leaders of nonprofits that have grown to the point where they need extra staff, but they don't have the revenue to pay for the extra staff. There are some uncomfortable growth po- stages in uh, organizational development. So I, just having that, the ability to just have a trusted peer, whether it's an outside coach that's not going to hire you or fire you, um, or uh, being on a board of associations of other CEOs, or calling a CEO in another community, uh, or leader. It could be departmental leader too. I mean, it doesn't. Ha- it can be emerging leaders as well. Having somebody that you trust that can't hire you or fire you that you can just kind of let your guard down a little bit with, because. Honestly, it's not safe to always let our guard down. Some our boards expect us to have a certain, uh, you know, the uh, ability to do things, and our staff. Sometimes I've had, I've seen nonprofit staff that are gunning for their CEO's position, so that's not necessarily safe for a CEO to explore being vulnerable uh, in the workplace. <laughs> there may be other places that they need to explore that first. So, in in your three decades in the nonprofit sector, and what now twenty years focusing on leadership, what have you discovered to be the most critical traits for successful leadership, especially for nonprofit leaders? Well, first of all, um, I just have to acknowledge that it's still hard for me to hear about the decades, counting my time in the sector in decades. I'll just say that for the record. No, no, it's true. <laughs> no, no apology needed. Just happens every year. Every year, this gets a year longer. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> Fortunately, it hasn't been the same year repeated 30 times. I've grown and changed as well through that. The Probably the most, I think the most critical state uh, traits, especially now, are just being curious, continuing lifelong learning, trying to not... The, the leaders that seem to struggle the most or have teams that struggle the most are the ones that feel like they've arrived or that have just given up and feel like, I don't want to learn anymore. I've been at this too long, been there, done that. We can't test new things. We're just going to keep doing what we've always done. So I guess another way to put it is one of the best traits of leaders is not having all the answers, which is so hard, Margaret, because mm. as a student, we're graded for having the answers. As an early career person, we're we're where our performance is is uh, weighted on how did we do our tasks? How did how did we perform on our tasks? And then as you go higher in leadership, it becomes that that gets flipped so that it's more are you how are you casting vision? How are you interacting with others? How are you building a cohesive team? Which are all kind of hard to measure tasks as opposed to did you get the mailing out <laughs> or did you talk to these donors or did you feed this number of people or preserve this much acreage? So I think that ha not having all the answers and really including your team into solving some of the problems, not abdicating authority. I think that's one of the big problems that some leaders that are trying to be more servant leader type people have is that they forget that they're still in charge. And so I like um, the idea of how, what's our mission? What's our vision? Ideally, it would be in a strategic plan. Unfortunately, most nonprofits don't have one. And if they do, it's not complete. It's sort of a strategic wish. It's a it's an aspirational uh, sort of document, which is helpful at rallying people around, but it doesn't have really quantifiable outcomes that that can be measured. Uh, but having some sort of even a, a mission or a vision can be something that uh, independent of the leader that you can rally the team around and say, "Where this is where the organization, this is what we do. Where do you see yourself in this? And when you start asking those types of questions, the CFO may find, you may find that the CFO is really excited about fundraising. Uh, not that they're going to change their whole job description to be a fundraiser. That wouldn't be appropriate. But boy, there are some donors that would love to talk to the CFO. The CEO, the executive director, meh, maybe. But the chief financial officer, yeah, because they know the numbers. And there are some CFOs that are really good at telling the story in a way that most fundraisers have a, have a struggle to tell. So I think staying curious, asking questions, not having all the answers, and and having some level of comfort in saying, I don't know, what do you think? Gosh, a lot of that is just so, it's such a scary proposition, I think. And, Absolutely. you know, you, you've talked about this, how for you know our whole lives we're, we're graded on getting the right answers and, and it's looked upon as a failure to, to say, I just don't know, you know, and, and it, it's such a, it's just such a reversal. It's, 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 uh, I can imagine being a nonprofit leader and thinking, oh, my word, <laughs> you know, how do I do this? Like, how do I well, do and this especially thing? a nonprofit leader, because as a boss of a for-profit, you're in charge. So there's that. But as a nonprofit leader, you're not in charge. There's a board that hired you. And so you've, you're, you're having to play to a couple of two different audiences that you know of and a third that you are many nonprofit CEOs seem to forget. So the first one is the board that hired them. The second is the staff. There may be a fourth, which is their mission, but then the, or, or the third, which is their mission. But the fourth is the donors, the people that no matter in a business, the better you do serve your customers, the better the revenue generation is. If you price things correctly in a nonprofit, the better you serve your clients, your beneficiaries, the better you do your mission. That doesn't necessarily mean there's any more money coming in. You have to talk to the people with the money, which are called donors, and they can take up a lot of time. And it's not that you're shifting your organization to to change its mission at all, but to to 
it's like trying. So many nonprofits are like cars that are trying to make a cross country trip and 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 really resent having to stop at the gas station. There are times when you need to put fuel in the tank, and that's what donors help do. And so, learn. There's nothing wrong with learning how to speak to donors as long as you don't idolize them. They're not the center of your organization. You don't exist to you know bow down at the feet of donors, but they are an important, inclusive part of the whole community. That's people helping people that the nonprofit facilitates. So I I was going to ask what is it that keeps good leaders from becoming great leaders and 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 reaching their potential you, you know you, you've really already explained that but I, I think that our listeners might be interested in maybe some specifics of, of how do you overcome it how do you get there and and you know we've touched on that like this is a, a switch that needs to be flipped so how do they do that well I think a lot of it needs to start personally I think when you're engaging in something that is this vulnerable and this exposing, it's probably better to start, well, just like many of us start exercising, we try to start exercising in private and building up some resilience and muscles before we actually take it out to the gym or show other people. One of the early, there's not a sequential pattern there. I give 12 tools in the quadrant three section of Surprising Gift of Doubt, and, and they're all valid places to start. The two biggest entry points that I see people start in is either assessments whether it's um, your hardwiring, how you actually do things like the Highlands Ability Battery, your behaviors, how you actually act like DISC, or the motivations, why you ask, uh, why you act the way you act, which could be the Enneagram or Colby. Those are, are help people reflect on their own knee-jerk reactions and patterns and help them to distance themselves just a bit. I was talking with a CEO yesterday and she said, part of what my job has to be as I grow is there's the the staff response, but I need to see my own, pause long enough to see my own instinctual response and be able to choose if that's the right one for the situation. And that's what a lot of those assessments help do. Another place though is, is values. Looking at our values, what do we actually hold dear? Because unspoken, we think that everybody sees the world like we do. Um, so if you Google values inventory or go to conqueredleadershipgroup.com slash values, your listeners can get to a free values inventory. Uh, there's findyourblacksheep.com has another one. There's a, There are thousands out there. But one of the great things about identifying your core values is that then you start understanding why you're making decisions and not only how to make decisions, why you make decisions, but also how to make decisions when the when the map gets ripped away. So when lockdowns happen or a pandemic happens, you can still make decisions that are in keeping with your values, even if there's no strategic roadmap at all that's ever been thought of for this. As you're doing either of these, learning about how your your kind of habitual patterns are or what your core values are, it gives you language also to start sharing with others. And you might even include your team in this at that point, not necessarily revealing yourself so much, but seeing how it works with the team and talking about differences. The I guess the big thing for me is, any of these tools should be leading you to have more grace with individuals, not to confine them into uh, straitjackets or mm -hmm. to tell them what they can't do or to, to you know to be used that you can't possibly do this task because you're a this letter combination or, or you're a this shape like the assessments often do. So that's I think a lot of leaders go into it with that kind of almost re retribution minded <laughs> kind of confining thing. And all of this, uh, this whole exploration process should be opening you up and uh, opening your team up and, and seeing the differences and helping you move people around. I, I worked with one leader who tried a few of the assessments and um, after the Enneagram was the one that really opened it up for him, just the nine different types of motivations for people. And after the team misidentified themselves the first time, which is often common in the, with, the, with the Enneagram, 
when he they figured out kind of what each number they thought they were, he realized, oh my goodness, the this person isn't a weed. I just had them planted in the wrong place. They're a beautiful plant. And that's, I always suspected they were, but they were never doing the right. They were never doing it right. They were creating chaos and, and, and drama that didn't need to be created. But when I get them in the right position and I, the Enneagram helped give me the idea of this is how I can position this person to accomplish the same tasks, the same goals, but to do it in a beautiful, glorious way. Um, he he's just he continues to this day years later to thank me. It was a tool set that he allowed him to help others also grow in their confidence. So it, I, I think that what I'm hearing is that even good leaders really can be surprised at how different things can unfold and progress if if you're open to looking at things differently. That's all. Yes. Well said. Now you mentioned the pandemic. So let, let's just focus on that for, uh, for a minute. I know we're, we're close to running out of time, but what, if any lessons or, or warnings maybe have come out of leadership within this pandemic that would be good things for, for leaders to note, Hey, we've learned this, or we've learned not to do this. Has the pandemic, do you feel, will it have any lasting effects on leadership in the nonprofit world? Gosh, I hope so. I hope there's a lot of things that we put to, we couldn't do during the pandemic that we don't pick up again. I think one of the three things that come to mind about for leadership, one is the way that you measure board interaction. A lot of leaders got thrown by the having an ability to gather, and it was became really clear that they value they thought the value of the board or they thought the value to board into individual board members was gathering in a room together and talking about the nonprofit. When that's not really part of that's not the value. The value is the board getting to be part of something bigger, casting, you know, being able to steward a vision, help cast a vision, um, and also be the ambassadors back to the community. So refocusing on what is the tangible benefits and attractiveness to being on the board and helping them be able to do that, whether or not they're in co-located in the same space once a month or once a quarter. The second one is similar. It's about the staff. Major gift fundraisers have had this problem for years, but so many leaders are stuck on kind of a button seat mentality. If your butt's in the seat, I know you're probably doing the work. And so I feel comfortable where major gift owners need to be out. (laughs) They need to be away from the office. And it's very scary for CEOs because they don't know how do I measure what you're doing? Well, there's plenty of good tools to measure. But um, I think that's what the the second thing would be having what's the work that each role really needs to get done and how can we figure that out if it's getting done, whether it's work at home, whether it's in the office, whether it's on the field, it, it, how do we quantify this and and give maximum flexibility? I don't think we need to constrain staff as much as we have done in the past. And then the third one is the total generosity of donors. So one of the biggest problems when the shutdowns happen was this, it masked as as compassion, was the sense from board members and CEOs of we can't possibly ask donors right now. It's too trying a time. It's not respectful. It's not polite. It's something we shouldn't do. Fortunately, a number of nonprofits got over that. And the ones that did found that donors were giving two and three times as much as they'd given in previous years. The need was self-evident. And the fact that they could give to something that was helping fix the need gave them incredible, that gave the donors great peace of mind in a time of total chaos. And so I think one of the things, the third thing I'd hope that we leave as leaders and nonprofits is it is not up to us to make the decision for a donor, whether they should give or not. It's our role, job to be 
persuasive and give a good and make a good ask to donors and then to take their answer of yes or no with as mature adults but it's our job to ask and and invite them to to participate in the great work that our nonprofit and our team is doing it's not our it's never our job to say no we have to stop asking what you mentioned about um leaders getting comfortable with with letting their major gift officers get out of the office that's something that we we talked about a decade ago right <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, more than that. And and that was a big topic of conversation years and years ago. So, you know, maybe the, the pandemic is what is going to take to push that into becoming more acceptable. Well, also in the major gift officers had a huge problem because they were measuring, they had grown accustomed to measuring their success by being out. And a lot of the metrics were face-to-face visits. When that was no longer possible, a lot of them got listless. They didn't, mm-hmm. um, but the ones that really coped well with it realized, oh, I get to do my job for the first time. I get to call donors and listen to them. I get to hear their story. I get to hear what connects them to the organization. And they get to call a lot deeper into their database and a lot broader, a lot wider into their database than they normally would have. And I really hope that we don't lose that. I hope we don't lose the the power. In fact, some people, some organizations I worked with that were larger found their telemarketing teams were raising far more money than their major mm-hmm. gift teams. And so they're restructuring their how they, they do all their outreach because it turns out donors will give five and six figure gifts from a telephone call. You don't have to actually be face-to-face. I, I'm still a proponent of face-to-face when it's possible. But the I, I, a lot of major gift donors forgot it's the relationship in inviting the donors into something powerful and impactful more than physically being co-located with them. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Mark, what would be your final word for this conversation? What, what would you like to leave our audience with today? Well, I guess the what I'd love to leave all the, all listeners with, because I think leadership is a matter of influencing people. It's not just a title. So all of us have leaders, some leadership ability. And I would I would just encourage you, the, if you're listening to this, to think, if you feel like you're broken, if you feel like you don't, you clearly don't have the skills to to take on what's next. Maybe listen to that inner nudge and and ask yourself, well, what if I am the perfect person for this role? What if I'm the perfect person for this situation? How would I do things differently? And just explore where that might take you. Wonderful, wonderful and scary. (laughs) Yeah, totally scary, yes. Getting out of our comfort zone, that's something that that you've been talking about also for years. So Mm -hmm. really great insights. Thank you so much. Um, Mark, thanks again for for being here with us today uh, and for your thoughtful and thought-provoking insights. It's, It's really been great to talk to you again. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time on the Beacon Podcast. Thanks for listening to The Beacon, your connection to nonprofit success. Tune in every week for nonprofit topics with special guest interviews. Suggest future topics and learn more about upcoming podcasts and guests at lighthousecouncil.com.